Good evening, everybody. It's good to be with you again. I want to start tonight by asking you a question. The question is, did any of you play sports when you were a kid? Okay, now here's the the more uncomfortable question. Were any of you good at those sports? I'll speak for myself in saying I was not. I love sports and I worked hard at them, but I didn't discover that my vision was poor and get my first pair of glasses until I was a little over 10 years old. And by then, I'd been playing baseball for several years as a kid, and I had been hit by a blurry baseball so many times that I had lost my nerve. And so even with the glasses, I still couldn't really compete. But at least in the place where I grew up, uh, there was this backup option for kids like me, which is to say, Kids who were not talented enough or tall enough or strong enough to keep hanging with the sports programs at our middle school or high school. And that backup plan for kids like me was church league. As I've said a million times, I grew up in a mid-sized Southern Baptist church in rural South Carolina, but it wasn't the only such church in the area that I grew up in. And even though I never remember my church partnering with any of those other churches, Baptist or otherwise, for any sort of community service or ministry event when I was growing up, we were apparently willing to let our kids prove our denomination's doctrinal dominance over the Methodists on a basketball court. I loved church league sports. I played basketball, I played volleyball, softball. We even had a ping pong championship once upon a time. And I loved them because I could hang with these kids. I could even be good against some of these other kids. And that was important because here's the thing. All of those other kids were monsters. They were total monsters. All of them on every other team. Cheaters, liars, bad sports, fighters, you name it. And yet, the good news was that by God's grace, my team, the team at my church, somehow was righteous and upstanding. We were saints, really. And it turned out that these leagues needed a team of saints like my team because there were hooligans in these leagues left and right. Now, I'm joking, of course, and and obviously now I can see what was happening when I was a kid. I can see how that streak of competition in me was skewing my perception of others. And I'm sure that those kids at all those other churches probably thought the same thing of me as what I thought of them. But you know what's funny? This past summer, Revolution played in a church softball league. And even though I am now 39 years old, in a flash when we were playing in that league, that same distrust, that same condemnation sprang back into my heart. Meredith would get on me after just about every game we played about how certain I was that those other players were all rotten scoundrels. I complained just about every game about uh, uh, what I thought was a dirty play or, or something unfair that another team had done. And in such a clear, clear way, like we are all allies, right? I mean, after all, there aren't that many churches here in Annapolis. And... You know, there there aren't all that many people out there who go to these churches. These were just a few little congregations, just like ours, that had put together this, this fun, informal little softball league. And here's the thing. We were all having a great time playing. 
And these men and women that we were playing against each week, they weren't just fellow athletes or fellow Annapolitans. More than that, they were fellow Christians. So as I reflect back on all this, the question I keep wondering is, why was I so skeptical of them? Why was I so distrustful? Why did that distrust from that I remembered feeling as a kid and my, you know, as 10, 11, 12 year old, why did that come back now that I'm an adult? Now, you're right, by the way, we're not just here to ruminate about sports rivalries for the next half hour. And so I'm not going to belabor this point any more than I already have. I'm sure you guys already get how these kinds of things work in a message. But what I do want us to think about, what I do want us to think about tonight are church rivalries. And not only where those rivalries come from, but why those rivalries are still so easy for us to slip into, even when we know better. When I first started working for Revolution, and I started spending more time with pastors, I thought I was going to spend a lot of time hearing about and arguing about doctrine with them. I thought that that was what most divided us, these particulars in our various churches about baptism or about atonement or about eldership. But that's not what I ended up experiencing at all. Most pastors seem to actually get along really well, and we don't actually argue. But we also don't partner. And although the excuses for not partnering are often doctrine-based, I'm just not buying that as the real reason To me, saying the reason we can't do work together is because one church allows women to preach and another doesn't, or one church believes that homosexuality is a sin and another doesn't. That, to me, is a red herring. After all, what do those things have to do with providing meals for the hungry or housing the homeless? No, what I've come to believe personally is that we don't do more together for the same reason that we invent our enemies on a softball field. It's because we are convinced that we are the heroes of our own story. We look out and they are already on the other team. And so we go about searching for reasons why somebody, why anybody would choose to be our enemy. In his letter to the churches in the city of Corinth, and and it matters that this is a letter to churches, plural, the Apostle Paul warns his readers against fighting amongst each other. He writes this, he writes, For since there is jealousy and quarreling among you, are you not worldly? Are you not acting like mere humans? For when one says, I follow Paul, And another, I follow Apollos, are you not mere human beings? What, after all, is Apollos? And what is Paul, only servants through whom you came to believe, as the Lord has assigned to each his task? I planted the seed, Apollos watered it, but God is the one who has been making it grow. So neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything, but only God who makes things grow. The one who plants and the one who waters have one purpose, and they will each be rewarded according to their own labor. For we are co-workers in God's service. You are God's field. You are God's building. 
I think Paul cuts to the heart of the issue. Your quarrels aren't about the subjects that you disagree on. Your quarrels are about the team that you think you are playing for. I follow Paul. I follow Apollos. The letter digs into the desire to believe that the team you are on makes you and you alone the hero of the story. And what's the solution? Well, Paul says here that these men are, quote, only servants through whom you came to believe as the Lord has assigned to each his task. Now, what that means is that there are differences between Paul, Apollos, and the churches they each founded in the city of Corinth. And those differences are good and those differences are purposeful. They have to do with the work God has assigned to each of them. But God is still the hero, as God is the one that Paul says has been making the churches grow. Now, that really gets to the heart of our hero worship, doesn't it? Just like we talked about last week, the temptation is so often to believe that our success is because of our smart decisions as church leaders. We cracked the church code, and if you don't follow in our footsteps, you are on the wrong team. But Paul reminds these churches that one, their differences are purposeful, and two, that their success isn't up to them. In fact, he says near the end here that the differences in the rewards that churches receive do flow from their labor, but he says their labor isn't the same. Each has their own job in God's kingdom. We are co-workers, Paul says, in God's service. We are together God's field, God's building. Now, that last turn of phrase is important. Because it gets us to our central metaphor for tonight. Once upon a time, the preaching team briefly introduced the phrase, one church, many doors here at Revolution. I know I preached on it once. I remember Josh talked about it a handful of times. And the big idea of that string of messages once upon a time was that for Revolution to succeed, we needed to realize that the front doors on each one of our houses or our apartments are also doors into this church. That you are gateways to belonging here. That you are living out the kinds of relationships with your friends and neighbors that can if you let them introduce people to Jesus. We are one church. And to be healthy, we need to recognize that we have many doors. But what has become increasingly clear to me over the last five years is that revolution is just another door, too. That in truth, there is one church in Annapolis, one church in the world, and that we are a door among other doors into it. And if we're going to actually be a contributing part of the entire church's success, we have to start thinking radically about what it means to be a part of the whole. We have to lean in to what makes 
this door of revolution distinctive and effective in our particular and our unique context. And we also have to lean out over to the side to make sure that the doors that are next to ours are also able to succeed. That those doors and the people in them are able to believe that they are not on their own. In another letter that he wrote to the church at Colossae, Paul closes things out with the kind of passage that we can often be tempted to skim through, if we're honest, when we read the Bible. But it's a passage that I think helps us tonight. Paul closes his letter like this. He writes, Tychicus will tell you all the news about me. He is a dear brother, a faithful minister, and a fellow servant in the Lord. I am sending him to you for the express purpose that you may know about our circumstances and that he may encourage your hearts. He is coming with Onesimus, our faithful and dear brother, who is one of you. They will tell you everything that is happening here. My fellow prisoner Aristarchus sends you his greetings, as does Mark, the cousin of Barnabas. You have received instructions about him. If he comes to you, welcome him. Jesus, who is called Justice, also sends his greetings. Now these are the only Jews among my co-workers for the kingdom of God, and they have proved a comfort to me. Epaphras, who is one of you, and a servant of Christ Jesus, sends greetings. He is always wrestling in prayer for you, that you may stand firm in all the will of God, mature and fully assured. I vouch for him that he is working hard for you and for those at Laodicea and Hierapolis. Our dear friend Luke, the doctor, and Demas send greetings. Give my greetings to the brothers and sisters at Laodicea and to Nympha and the church in her house. After this letter has been read to you, see that it is also read in the church of the Laodiceans and that you in turn read the letter from Laodicea. Tell Archippus, see to it that you complete the ministry you have received in the Lord. I, Paul, write this greeting in my own hand. Remember my chains. Grace be with you. Now, I know that may not have been the most overtly convicting passage that we've ever read out loud, and I also know it was a bit long, but my question is this. What did you hear in that? What did you hear? What I hear is that Paul is not denying that the churches at Laodicea and Hierapolis and Colossae are different, but he is treating these churches like they are on the same team. Share the letters, he says. Share the greetings. When he talks about Onesimus and Epaphras, he says of them, they are one of you, meaning they are Colossians. The distinctiveness of the Colossian congregation is not being undermined here. What is being undermined is their supremacy, their temptation to see themselves and their church as the heroes of the story. When we look at the early church, we can see over and over again that despite their cultural differences, the differences in their teaching, their racial differences, their geographic differences, that they are instructed over and over again to do three things together. They talk to each other. They support each other in financial and personal ways. And they bring what is unique 
about them to bear for kingdom purposes. There are many doors into the church, and each one looks different and is maybe a different size and has different folks standing inside it and different folks standing outside of it. But all of those doors lead into one church because there is one plan for how the world is going to be transformed, and that plan is through the coming of God's kingdom here to this earth through the sharing of God's radical love. That is it. That's the plan. You are uniquely made for love. And you have an all-encompassing responsibility to share it. We, as a church, are uniquely made by virtue of our own individual differences for love. And we, as a church, have an all-encompassing responsibility to share it. And then the church is uniquely made by virtue of the individual differences of each congregation for love. And the church has this all-encompassing responsibility to share that love. So what gets in the way of that unity? Believing the name on the front of our uniform doesn't just make us different. It makes us heroic. If, If we fall for the lie that revolution is the one and only way to do church, We will set ourselves up like a virus in this city, seeking to replicate and replicate and replicate and pressing others around us to conform to our model or die. And I got to tell you, if we've learned anything about viruses in the last year and a half, it is that that is not how a city is saved. Even worse, even worse, we will turn a skeptical eye to others who are set on the same work we're set on and will say of those others, those brothers and sisters in Christ, will say to ourselves, those cheaters, look at their closed-mindedness, look at their judgmentalism, look at their heresy. Now, to be sure, sometimes churches really do get important things wrong. I'm not saying that churches don't have reasonable disagreements. But I am saying this. Think about your own life. Have you ever been changed for the better by the condescension and judgment of somebody else? Has judgment and condescension ever made you better? (laughs) I doubt it. Do you know what changes us? What changes us are words from a friend pushes that come from somebody we know cares about us because we are already on the same team as them. What kills our unity in the church is our vanity and our pride. And if we could give that up, if we could give it up, what could we do? How do we live as a good door alongside our neighbors in Laodicea and Hierapolis and Edgewater and Arnold in Davidsonville? Well, I think there are a few things. First, we talk to each other. We talk to each other. Who do you know who attends a different church than ours? Have you ever asked yourself, why do they go there? 
Have you ever asked them? What do they love about it? What good work is happening there that encourages them? What things about that community make it unique? Be genuinely curious. And on top of that, I think we can follow the examples of Tychicus and Onesimus and Paul, and we can do the radical thing of going to visit. Go be an encouragement to somebody else's church. One of the beauties of of doing church on Saturday evenings is that I know for most of you, your Sunday mornings are free. So go visit, go listen, talk to people from other churches, talk and visit other churches. The second thing we can do is we can support each other. In some ways, we already do this at an institutional level. Revolution funds church plants out of our own budget each year, and we're going to keep doing that. But it's also about more than just giving money. It's also sharing in the work of others and inviting others to share the credit with our own work. A little while ago, Claire shared a a few announcements about upcoming events sponsored by what she called the Clergy of Annapolis Group, which is a group that we participate in, that I participate in. There's an event tomorrow downtown called Faith in Blue, and it's intended to help build trust between churches and law enforcement here in our city. Now, that event historically has been sponsored by John Wesley United Methodist Church. And this year, John Wesley United Methodist is still operating the event, still planning the event, still sponsoring the event, doing all the work of the event, but they are sharing credit for that event with all of us, and they're inviting all of us to join them. Next weekend, a little church called Alelon here in the city is having what was originally their fall picnic, but because their pastor, a guy named Tom Ho, is part of the clergy group that we're also in, he has invited all of us to be a part of that picnic so that we can meet more of our neighbors. It's become an Annapolis church's picnic now, and I hope, I really do hope, that at least some of us are able to make it. So part of the way that we support each other is we share in the work others are doing. We do the things that we're invited to do. But there's another part, too, and that's the hard part. It's sharing credit. Two weeks ago, we sponsored a blood drive here at Heritage, and and I did all I could to share that event with those other church communities in the clergy group. I know other pastors in our group talked about it with their folks. I know that they encouraged their churches to come out, but when the day came, it still ended up being entirely our folks from Revolution who came and donated, which means this is one of those moments when it can be so tempting to retreat back into our own team, to think that next time we're going to keep this event to ourselves if nobody wants to come, or even to email the Bloodmobile folks and ask, hey, if you share anything about this blood drive or post anything about it, why don't you just use our church's name instead of crediting things to all the churches of Annapolis because, you know, they didn't really help. But obviously... We're not going to act that way, right? We're not going to act that way. And here's why. Because what's the work that we're set on? It's sharing. The work is sharing the love of God with our city. No strings attached. That's the work. And the question is, what benefit is there to that mission? The mission of sharing the love of God with our city. No strings attached. If it is just about us and our credit, and our fame? The answer is none at all. None at all. 
We have to be there for other churches. We have to show up at their events. We have to help at their food pantries, give blood for their blood drives, drop off toys for their Christmas programs, all those things. And we have to keep inviting those churches to do work with us, no matter who shows up or what happens. We've got to keep sharing credit because the point isn't to grow the size or the influence of our one particular door. The point point is to love God's church in its entirety. And what kind of door condemns its own building? Which, of course, isn't at all to say that we're not uniquely made, that there's nothing special or different about us. Our last calling, the third thing, is to bring what is unique about us to bear for kingdom purposes. If we're not going to try and be the only doorway in our city into God's church to be a a one-size-fits-all solution, there's wisdom in trying to discern what makes us different. To overextend this metaphor a bit, it's worth trying to figure out which direction our doorway faces, towards which streets or which neighborhoods. It's worth trying to figure out when this doorway is open. What does this doorway look like? Who are the people who are tending to it? Who are the people who are welcoming people into it? It's worth wondering, what is God doing here at Revolution to shape us into the kind of congregation that he intends for us to be in order to play our small part in the bigger work that he's doing? To try and answer those questions, here's what I believe. Sure, a bunch of us have tattoos and we play music in a certain way and we teach in a certain way and we observe communion in a certain way. There are particular things about us that are obvious at first glance, but I think what is truly special about this group of people here at Revolution, what's truly special about you is that in this church, I think we love one another patiently and honestly. I've seen and felt a special honesty and a special openness here that is distinctive. You guys trust that your friends here are on your team as you question and as you doubt and as you grow and believe and wrestle with God no matter what the end result of that process is. You have people on your team no matter how things turn out. And I believe there are people in this city who need a doorway like that. People who have doubts, who are wary of what can seem like superficiality and Christians they've known. People who want to be with people who love them and are patient with them no matter what. And our responsibility as a church in the year ahead is to lean in to who we are with the humility to know that our little team isn't the hero. It's not the only team. And then also to lean out to make sure that those other doors, those other teams, those other churches feel and believe and know that we are all in this together. That we're not alone. And that what binds us is so, so much bigger And so, so much better than whatever it is we would strive to build on our own. 